I thank you, choir. Beautiful, beautiful song. An old hymn and yet remade. Sounds beautiful that way. This week, maybe you had, this past week, had a chance to read through the book of Daniel. Uh, we have 65 others who have, and I'd like to include you on the tally. If you have read through the book of Daniel this past week, uh, for the first time, let me see. I'm looking for hands. One. One, two, yeah, two, am I missing anybody? Two, that's 67, that means we have eight more of you out there, because uh, we're aiming for 75. So, uh, if you've gone through the book of Daniel and gave a one-word title for every chapter, and you'd like to share it with us, we would love to hear it. Anybody this morning? I got a couple handed to me last week. I appreciate that. I told you before, if, you're, if you just can't do that out loud and afraid to do it in front of people, you can write it down and give it to me. Even you Zoom, Zoom folks can mail it in uh, if you want. I don't mind that at all. And so I've got, uh, I got some added last week, and we've got 15. So that means we only have 60 more of you to do that. Uh, the third thing I gave you as an option was to memorize some verses. Five is what I recommend, but uh, any verses from the book of Daniel, maybe you have memorized some and want to share them with us. Oh, it gets really quiet, that memorization thing. We actually have 21 people, in, and again, we've had several who have written them out because they are absolutely sure they couldn't do it out loud and they would mess up and all those kind of things. So they wrote them out and they actually signed their name to say that they did it honestly. So uh, you don't have to sign your name and prove that. I don't, only a notary would help. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but no, if you want to do it that way, that is great too. 21 people so far, so we've got room for another 55 or 54 of you to do that if you'd like. Anyway, I just want you to get involved in the uh, book of Daniel outside of our morning sermon time. Uh, it is a good book to know, a good book to refresh in our minds, to get a, a feel for it. So I, I ask you to do that if you're uh, not one that has been numbered here this morning. We'd love you to join us in that, to encourage one another. Uh, so I thank you for the two who have said they've read this week. That's great. Um, we are studying the word uncompromising, and Daniel is the example of this. He had a resolution to follow and obey God, regardless of the consequence of living in a pagan world. He sets before us how you can trust God regardless, and that is certainly something all of us can put to our hearts. Uh, it doesn't matter the circumstance or the complications or the challenges of your life. Uh, we are all called to trust God, right? And that is regardless, regardless of the things that go around with you. And there are consequences for walking with our Lord in our day and age already. There are consequences for that. And that's why we're studying Daniel here. It's more than just the fact that he wrote a lot of prophecy. I mean, that's great. And that's what most people go to the book of Daniel for. But even in the prophetic sections, he had to trust God. There was a young man looking out, and God gave him direction for all that's going to transpire for, now we know, for thousands of years to come. 
And that man, Daniel, was not going to see the end of it in his lifetime. And he was going to encounter some very difficult days. We'll see those chapters. But he trusted God regardless. And we're going to learn from that. Uh, I like the prophecy section. I know most of us do. Uh, talking about what's happening and what's going on and gives us a better feel for things. And, and I'm afraid in our day and age, churches are not teaching prophecy like uh, Scripture tells us to. And so I want to make sure we get this carefully stated and carefully presented and understood and believed. That's what we're aiming to do. Um, years ago, I sat in my office in Warsaw, Indiana, and a, a man came into the office to talk to me. I'd never met him before. He just came off the streets and, and uh, ushered into my office. And um, he was making his rounds of the churches in the Warsaw area. He wanted to share with me some very important information he had about God. And I thought that was uh, going to be interesting. He handed me a, a folder of all the research that he had done, and he began to explain to me uh, what I later understood to be the doctrine of open theism. I don't know if you've heard those words, open theism, but if you're not aware of what that is, it's a basic belief that God does not know the future, and he has no certainty about what's going to happen, and he's just as surprised and what happens today is you are. We have a category for that kind of doctrine. We put it in the file called hooey. <laughs> now, I let him speak for his sufficient amount of time. Then I posed a question to him. And I took him to the book of Isaiah. And I read to him Isaiah 44, verse 28. In that passage, it says, it is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. He, and he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple your foundations will be laid. So this Cyrus is going to do what God says to do. He will have the uh, city built up and the temple rebuilt. Isaiah wrote that in 700 B.C. The temple was built in 500 B.C. You're good at math, right? How did God, I'm got, this is my question I asked him, how did God know 200 years before the temple would be built and that it would be sponsored by a Persian king and that his name would be Cyrus? 200 years before the event. He sat there for a minute without saying a word. Then he said, I think I need to study that. <laughs> and he picked up his material, and he left. I never saw him again. We teach that God is omniscient. Big theological term means all-knowing. In layman's terms, that means he doesn't need to learn anything. That's pretty potent. That's incredible to me. Most significant to that statement is that he can look into the future and tell exactly what is going to happen to such detail that if he wanted to, he could have told us also in Isaiah what color socks Cyrus would be wearing the day he made the proclamation. God would have known that. He knows everything. 
And I have no trouble with a God who has that kind of knowledge. Some people say, well, that kind of troubles me a little bit. Well, it, it doesn't me as much because in that I find my comfort. In that I find my security to know he holds the future. He holds it. And he also holds my times in his hand. And I don't really need to know the future, to be the, honest with you. I just need to better know the God who does. And that's what I've seen in the study that we're working through here, is that as Daniel chapter 2 starts to set the table for us as to the rest of the prophecies in this book, God chose to give it one piece at a time. And if we are in this chapter and the answer to our question is six words and it doesn't give us enough information, trust God regardless. All right? Daniel had to do that. He didn't get the whole book in one night. He got it piece by piece by piece. And the material that we have in Daniel chapter 2 is rather short. It's lacking a lot of the details that we're going to fill in later, but it was God's plan to declare his future, and he gave it according to his own wisdom. So Nebuchadnezzar didn't need the entire picture. God gave him just a piece, a small piece. And even then you make wonder, well, what did he glean from it except that he went and built his own statue the next chapter. But uh, God in his wisdom gave what he needed to give. And when you talk about this, this, this chapter 2 is kind of the big panorama of God's plan. They, they just set up the times of the Gentiles. That's a term we're going to use more and more as we get later into the text. But it's a time of the Gentiles, how he will show that, God, that man's government is insufficient Man's government is weak. Man's government is limited. It cannot endure. And it will not endure. There is a kingdom coming, and it belongs to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And when that kingdom is set up on this earth, all kings and all kingdoms will bow down to him. That we know. And that's what we're learning in this. I love what Isaiah 6 said. Isaiah 6, uh, no, 9 Isaiah 9, verse 6 says, For a child's been born to us, a son's been given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness, righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. I thought I'd slip in that Christmas verse today. You know you only have 85 more days. Just so you know. Okay. We're going to read the passage. That's just preparatory stuff. All right. Heavenly Father, help us today as we study your word to get a better understanding of what you have set before us. Uh, help us, even with limitations, to trust you regardless. And uh, for that, we will praise you and thank you for your teaching today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. 
We're going to go into Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 31, and I'm going to read it. I'm, a, I'm getting the thing shorter each time. I've been getting the chapter a little shorter each time I read it, but uh, we're going to start in verse 31. But remember the rules as we study the book of Daniel. Uh, we have to understand these visions are given to Daniel, and so they must be understood while standing in his sandals. That's why I like to say it. Uh, we have to see it from his view, not ours, but his perspective. Uh, second, all these visions are primarily focused on Israel. We're going to see what God is going to do for his people. It's not about the church. I'm going to underscore that every single time I can. So if you're looking for the rapture in the book of Daniel, you will not find it there. It's for New Testament verses. It's for the New Testament church. It's not what you'll find in the book of Daniel. The primary lesson is on faith. That's what we're going to find here, trusting God, even while the, rule, the world is ruled by the heathen. And I think there's application for all of us right there, too. So the key to this vision is, again, the failures of the kingdoms of this world to endure and the fact that all, uh, all will be overcome by the kingdom of the Messiah. So, starting Daniel 2, verse 31, you, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great image. That image, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was rising up in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that image was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partially of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the image on the feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried them away so there was not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain, filled the whole earth. This was a dream. Now we will say its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heavens has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men inhabit, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hands. He has made you rule with power over them all. You are the head of gold. But after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. Then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule with power over all the earth. All right, that's where we're going to stop today. Again, I've got some pictures up here. You might start to find them to be uh, familiar because they're the same pictures. All right, so we're going to start with our kingdoms statue here. There are four kingdoms mentioned in this particular prophecy. The verses 37 and 38 talk about kingdom number one. It's the head. It's gold, as we see on the picture on the left. That was in reference to Babylon. We know that because he said to Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of Babylon, you are the head. And the description of it just fit perfectly. 605 to 539 BC was the duration of the particular kingdom from Nebuchadnezzar on to the end. All right? Actually, Babylon went further, further back than that. But this was the section the Lord gave to us. Uh, in verse 39, last week we looked at kingdom number two. We call it the chest, it's the arms and the chest, it's the Medes and the Persians, and they will rule from 539, conquering the first kingdom, 
to 331 BC. We talked about that uh, last week as well. And all it said about them was that another kingdom inferior to you will arise. Not a whole lot of information to work with. So we go into the rest of verse 39 today, and it's the third kingdom. It's the thighs, and it's, it's the color there that's bronze in color. And that's what it's supposed to represent. Um, the third kingdom of bronze, which will rule with power over all the earth. Each part of the statue represents four kingdoms. All right? They're working here in descending order, starting at the top, working our way down. Uh, the visions are given. The nature of the kingdom is that, that each one is a little more inferior. Uh, some people like to talk about the value, and they point out these simple things. Gold, like I said last week, and maybe it's changed this week, but if you went out and bought an ounce of it, you'd be paying somewhere around $2,000 an ounce. Seems like a lot of money. Um, if you were to buy silver, you'd pay for an uh, ounce for $23. Now we go into bronze today. It's an alloy, uh, they say in scripture anyway, of copper and tin, and it runs about 15 cents an ounce. That's getting pretty cheap. Uh, this is a kingdom that we're going to label as Greece. Did you see the word Greece in there? No, you did not. Verse 39 said three things. Number one, it's a third kingdom. Number two, it's a kingdom of bronze. And number three, it will rule over all the earth. Those are three things it told us at that moment. And standing in our shoes today, we could look back and say, well, that's not difficult to label. We could call it Greece. That's pretty easy to say. Uh, Daniel does not know that in chapter 2. That's quite a ways down the road. We're talking 331 B.C. Daniel's living way up there in 605. When he, about 605, when he got the vision, somewhere around 605, 604, somewhere in there. But he gets his vision, and that's, that's a long ways away, almost 300 years. Daniel didn't know there was a nation, Greece, was going to do that. He didn't understand it that way. But by the time we get to vision number 8, uh, in, I mean vision in chapter 8, Greece is actually named. Now, here's what's remarkable. Greece is named in that vision, and that's still 250 years before it ever happened. Here it starts in Daniel 8. You could travel over there for a minute, since we won't get to this passage for at least a year and a half. We might as well look at it now. Daniel 8, verse 21. Part of the vision says this, and this is really going to help you understand it. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. Does that help? The shaggy goat. Next time you have a shaggy goat on your property, name it Greece. That would just help, or help you remember the verse. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. We'll get into that later. Daniel 10, verse 20. Daniel 10, verse 20. This is in regard to understanding the vision. He said, do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia, so I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. 
Now, we're not going to answer what is he talking about here, except notice the order. Persia, Greece. Persia, Greece. Greece is about to come. In verse 2 of chapter 11, just turn the page maybe, or maybe it's right there. Daniel 11, 2. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to rise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. One more, but it's not here. It's in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 13. Zechariah would have written after 539, after the Medes and the Persians were already in uh, control at that time, and Zechariah writes here, Zechariah 9.13, For I will bend Judah as my bow, I will fill the bow with Ephraim, and I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and I will make you like a warrior's sword. All I wanted to show you was that, yes, God knew Greece was coming. <laughs> he even had him by name. And that was 200 years before the fact, that he was already mentioning Greece. Now, in Daniel chapter 2, he does not name them there. And so we only have the benefit of looking back. But since we're trying to stand in Daniel's sandals today, we could come with an understanding He's talking about the third kingdom of Greece. We just know that it's going to follow the Medes and the Persians. And it will rule over the whole world one day. I'll show you some of the contrast here by nature of some maps. All right. Here's, here's this map we looked at before. The Babylonian Empire, the green one. That's a pretty good stretch of land. This is Israel. This is Jerusalem. All the way down to Egypt. Babylon would rule from the Persian Gulf all the way up the Euphrates and Tigris River, all the way up along there and down into Egypt. That's where they fought a lot of their battles, between Babylon and Egypt. After them came the Medes, the Persians. Uh, we'll get to the Persians in a minute. But the Mede Empire was sitting right up on top of Babylon, and they helped Babylon in the conquest of Assyria, which was up in that area. Nineveh was one of their capitals. And uh, the Medes were there. But they always went piggyback. They, they followed somebody else. They stayed with the Babylonians for a while. Let's flip to the next one. And then when the Persians took over, the Medes joined them. And they fought against Babylon, and they won again. Notice, here's Media Persia, and their kingdom is quite large. They covered an awful lot of territory with their kingdom, stretching far toward this region called India and up, up above. Uh, so this is the Persian Empire. Now, we'll take the next page, and there's the Greek Empire. In case you're wondering, the map we were looking at was this right here. Greece is way up there. Matter of fact, this is Greece, the country over here. Greece at the bottom, Macedonia at the top. It was actually four particular states that made up the territory of Greece. And uh, what was interesting about them is that they didn't get along very well. They all were pretty much of the, of the same families, if you will. They, they had a lot in common. But Greece, way over on the other side, it really isn't all that big compared to a kingdom of this nature. But uh, we go back to about the mid-500 BCs. 
And that's where I'm going to start our story today with the, uh, the story of Greece. It was about the time when Babylon was in charge. Uh, there were many, many battles going on. Even while Babylon was in charge, the Persians were constantly fighting the Greeks. They were going back and forth, back and forth in history uh, between them two. Uh, and Greece was getting pretty tired of it. The little guy on the block, always getting bullied by Persia. And uh, Greece rose to prominence in an unusual way because most people would just get their armies together and go and fight and win the battle. But Greece had an advantage over most of the countries of their day and age because of their philosophers and their scientists. Uh, how do you say it? Hippocrates? Hippocrates. Hippocrates. Got the accent in the wrong place. I like Hippocrates personally, but uh, Hippocrates. Now, that would be important to some people in this room. It has to do with the fact that he was called the father of medicine, modern medicine. Um, Socrates, I could say. Plato, Aristotle. They had quite a string of very significant thinkers and men who were quite advanced and moving their culture forward, and it was pretty impressive. And they also uh, were able to organize sporting events. And they had an event every four years. One year it was in this state, and the next year it was in that state, and then it was in this one, there was that one. It just rotated around for four times, every, once every four years. And we copied that, and we call it the Olympics. And that's where its root was back then. And that's when they would uh, have their, that, I guess it was interesting because they'd fight with each other all year long until they'd get together for the games. And then they treated each other well. And then they'd go back to fighting the next week. But that was their style and that's what they did. Uh, there was a lot of fighting between those city-states uh, in the territory of Greece until a Macedonian leader, that's of the country just north of Greece, and that was part of the area, uh, named Philip, Philip of Macedon, uh, conquered the lower region of Greece. He finally got them all under his authority in 338 uh, BC, and that didn't last long because he was assassinated. It was about two years in, he was assassinated, and his son decided, well, I'll take it from here, and I will do what my dad wanted, and his name was Alexander the Great. And Alexander took over at the age of 21, and he decided Persia had had enough of its, its bullying and enough of its ways, and he started to conquer. And he started way over there in Greece, and he started coming this way all the way across the land, he would fight against the Persians. He'd defeat them in battle time after time after time again in 334, in 333, in 331. He finally finished them off. But in that, he also went down, as you can see, along the Mediterranean Sea. There was a city there called Tyre that was quite significant, and he conquered them. He walked by Jerusalem and said, all right, if you behave, I'll let you go. And then he went down toward Greece, uh, or to Egypt, and notice he got authority over that region. Then he came across Persia, and as he's going, he thought, well, I'll conquer this all the way as far as I could go, and he's heading toward India. And he was going to conquer that. He had plans to rebuild Babylon, the city, and he died 
It was in 323, he was only 32 years of age. They don't know why. There's speculation. Some say he was, uh, he had an alcoholic liver. Some people say it was strychnine poisoning. Some people say that uh, it was malaria or typhoid fever or something of that effect. Uh, they don't have enough information. All we do know is that his kingdom was then broken into four parts. His four generals took over. Ptolemy took over Egypt and ruled down there. Uh, Seleucus, or Seleucus uh, ruled over Syria. Uh, Cassander went to Greece and Macedonia. And Lysimachus, that's Greek to me, uh, Asia Minor or Turkey area. So we had four rulers and they took over. Now really, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids are the ones that are going to interest us later in the study of the book of Daniel. So hang on to that, but we won't have a quiz, I promise. Uh, but those two kingdoms are going to be part of our dialogue. But the real power of Greece died with Alexander. When Alexander died in 323, much of what is said about them, it's just that there were four kingdoms uh, mentioned, and Greece is going to have a relatively short duration. They're inferior to the other ones in several regards, but it's the kingdom of Greece that we're going to talk about as our third item. Let's, let's put it down now. We got Greece here in verse number 39. That much we can understand. Even though the text doesn't name Greece, it says those three things about it. It's a third kingdom, and it's bronze, and it will rule over all the earth. Now, suggested in that is that it's inferior. It's inferior to one. It seems to be inferior to number two as well. Uh, Persia, we know, was inferior to Babylon. And Greece was dominated by Persia for a lot of its history as well. But... It was a kingdom. And that's just something I want to stress here. It was a kingdom, and it was given authority by God. And its authority was, that, as it says, you will control the world. He didn't give it a duration, but he said it will rule over all the earth. Now, generally, we think, for the time of the Gentiles, we think, well, if it's ruling over all the earth, it's, it's oppressive and it's cruel and, and especially mean toward the Jews and such like that. Babylon went and destroyed their cities. But it was Persia that sent them back to rebuild them. Greece did have its share of tyrants, by the way. Uh, the most notorious one would be a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Epiphanes is the great man or something like that. The Jews renamed it by changing one letter and called him the madman. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes is one who will later desecrate the temple of God and sacrifice a pig on its altar. That's pretty sad, pretty bad. By the way, the book of Daniel talks about that. We'll get into some of that later. But Greece did have its share of tyrants. Uh, and no doubt, the Jews that were under the Greek empire were very glad to say goodbye to them when God was through with their kingdom. I don't doubt that at all, that they were ready to move on from Greece. But they had been ready to move on from Babylon. And they were ready to move on from the Medes and the Persians. And then the Greece uh, folks come along, and they were ready for that too. 
Most of the time we look at kingdoms over us and we say, boy, I want to get out from under them. But what I want to stress as we walk through this is there are several things of value for each of these kingdoms that do help us understand what God is doing. Remember, God is sovereign, right? He brings up kings, and he puts down kings. We saw that in Daniel chapter number 1. He chooses their time. He chooses their place in history. And that's not accidental. When God plans something, he's got a purpose for it. He's got a reason. And he declared that this would be the third kingdom, and they would rule over all the world. And their influence is very interesting to me. Uh, it was carried everywhere that they controlled. Still to this day, the studies of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle are still being done. The introduction of medical procedures and discoveries are still owed back to, how'd you say it? Hippocrates. Hippocrates. Yes. Okay. We're not going to complain about the influence that they've given to us over the years. The idea of bronze is interesting to us, perhaps. Um, it's useful. Bronze is much more useful. If you were to run in a race, though, and you came in third, they'd give you the bronze medal. Usually, if the first place is gold, second place is silver, third is bronze. And, and you may say, well, that, it's better to have no medal at all. Some people say, if you're not first, you've lost. Boy, they're tough. Aren't they tough to run against people like that? But uh, bronze is so much more useful than gold. Matter of fact, a lot cheaper, too. Uh, much cheaper. Gold is 10,000 times greater in value than bronze. But if you're going to make jewelry, they say you get more for less with bronze. Uh, gold and silver are both precious metals. They've been used for jewelry for centuries. But they're not the cheapest options, are they? Uh, bronze is less expensive than gold, much easier to work with. That means you can make, as one person said, you can make your own pieces at home. <laughs> so that's OK. But let me show you another picture here. This is all over your house, probably. The bronze can be used in uh, doorknobs, keys, locks, hardware, tools, uh, decorative items. Shell casings, gears, plumbing, fixtures, radiators, musical instruments. The list goes on and on and on about the use that we have of bronze. We could add that uh, armor was made with bronze, weapons were made with bronze, and they were considered better material if you were into battle. Uh, boats were made with bronze, ships were made with bronze, cattle or cannon barrels were made with bronze. Uh, electrical, mechanical conductors, springs, clips, electric motors, pianos. That's an electric one. So it doesn't have strings in there. But if it had strings, guess what they put the strings make them out of? They're bronze. Your guitar, if you play guitar, it might have bronze strings. Symbols are bronze. Statues. Have you ever noticed Oklahoma has a lot of statues? That'd be a great study sometime, just to go where all the statues are in the state of Oklahoma. There's a lot of them out there, and they're made of bronze. Lots and lots of statues. Uh, but with all that, the greatest influence I believe that Greek had on this world, and it's very significant to us yet today, 
is it came with a problem that Alexander the Great had with his armies. He had collected his armies from the four different states of Greece, Macedonia, collected all these men. The problem was, though they all spoke the same language, they spoke different dialects. And it was hard for them to understand each other. And as a result of that, they took all these multiple languages and the different shades of their Greek language, and they merged them together into one common language that they can use to communicate with one another as they went from place to place and conquered. They called that common Greek. Today we call it Koine Greek, using the Greek word for common. And that is the language God used not only for them to express themselves to one another, to give commands to one another, to write letters home, but also they used it for making shopping lists. It was that useful to them. And everywhere they went, my map, that's okay. Everywhere they went, they conquered people and said, now learn our language. It's called common Greek, Koine Greek. Learn it, learn it, learn it. They forced everybody to learn this particular language. It wouldn't be long until a command would be given that pieces of great literature had to be translated into Greek for the libraries. And among them was the Old Testament. We call it the Septuagint today. And the apostles also wrote their histories and their letters that means Paul and Peter and James and John and all the rest in the New Testament books that you have wrote it in common Greek. Why? Because it was a common language of everybody. And if you're going to write a letter that goes to everybody, put it in a language everybody knows. Guess who brought that about? Alexander the Great. He forced that upon the people he conquered. And so, Many times people say, well, that's Greek. It's so hard to understand. It wasn't for them at that time. It was very useful for them at that time. And many times even when I'm speaking, I say, well, the Greek says, right? I'm referring to that language. That book, that New Testament that we have today is what was already written in Greek, in the language called Greek. Very useful language because it precisely states what God wants us to record, what he wants us to know. And I love it for that reason. Um, I think it's interesting. What you have here is God took a man thirsty for power and world domination to conquer the Persian Empire, to institute now what we know as the Third Kingdom, to rule his people, and yet what he leaves behind is a useful language so that we can get out the message better, so that we can understand our God better. I think it's amazing. Greece might be inferior to Babylon and Persia in a lot of things, but their influence is far more significant. We're still using Greek things today. So when it comes to history, comes to prophecy, Daniel was interpreting things that would not come to pass for another 200 years after he saw that dream. And he still, just trust me, Daniel, just trust me in this. You see, God does, he does orchestrate history and brings all the parts into something very good that will bring him glory. Now, it's amazing to me to step back and look at it. But this is what he's done over the years. 
In the very beginning, he built the ground that we stand on today. And in Genesis 2.9, it says, Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. And Joseph was later sold into slavery by his brothers. You remember? And Joseph's comments in Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Esther, the queen, was, it was reminded to her that if she remains silent, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place for you and your father's house would perish. But who knows whether you've not attained royalty for such a time as this. That's God's orchestration. What do we read in Romans? We as believers count on this verse. We know that God calls us all things to work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. We don't always know the purpose, but we know that our God is good, right? And his work in history, and it may not have looked good to see Alexander come knocking on your door because you knew you were going to be conquered. But look at the influence that God brought about from such a nation like that. Daniel didn't know what all these kingdoms were about either. And the little he was shown just said, trust God regardless. See, we do have a God who knows the future. We know a God that has plans, and his plans are perfect. And so we could stand in our sandals today. And we can look out into our world today in an uncompromising way, folks. Whether we're at our lives, our jobs, our Christian witness, the words we say, the things we do, this world needs to see someone who will stand firm in an evil generation and say, I trust God anyway. We need more people like that. Why? Because we are told the rest of the story. And we can believe it. We have a sovereign God, and his plans go all the way to the end. That, to me, is huge. <laughs> but I know that some people have things that are in their lives that are huge. And maybe your things are small. Maybe they're, th they're big things that concern you. You know, kingdoms come in all size, and so do rough people. And so do problems and issues. We have all these different things in us, but we have a God who's in control over the little things and the big things. Our God is in control, and we are learning to trust him regardless. We've got one more slide here. We finish this up, short duration, 331 to 323. We've got one more to go. That's next week. We'll talk about the fourth kingdom that is yet to come. Okay, Heavenly Father, help us. Help us in, in uh, digesting some information like this. To see your hand at work. To remind ourselves that you are sovereign. You are sovereign right now, regardless of what's circling in our lives, whatever is blowing up in the, in the yard or in the home or, or at work or wherever that might be. You are sovereign because you are God. We're so glad we know you. And we're so glad you know us. You are so kind, so merciful, 
so patient. You will accomplish your work in us, Lord, and we thank you, Lord, for that. Teach us to be trusting people, to walk in such a way that uh, we set before the world around us, whether it be our own family, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, whoever it might be, set before them a testimony that we will trust you regardless. Teach us, Lord, we pray, as we trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen.